right, hey everyone, welcome to Genre Exposure, a film podcast. Join us as we explore the wide world of cinema, broadening our horizons one movie at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Dustin, and as usual, I'm here with Michael. Hello. And Jason. Hi. What's up, guys? How you doing? Great. Not too bad. How are you, Dustin? I'm excited to talk about this movie. Oh, well, yeah? We got other things to talk about first. I am. So hold are your they, excitement. Are they movie-related? Maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> I mean, I might talk about dinner. Right, well, let's warm up first with a little bit of what we've been watching recently. <laughs> Fair enough, fair That's enough. That's a great idea. It's a cinema podcast. We should talk about that, not my dinner. Probably. Save that for uh, cuisine exposure. <laughs> An offshoot. Jason, what'd you watch? Well, um, of note recently, I have watched two films, both with the same title. Ooh. Queen of Black Magic. Interesting. I actually just heard about this on a podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, yes, uh, I actually didn't know much about this movie. I remember hearing the title, uh, the, a remake just hit Shudder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was made just last year. Oh yeah. This is the Indonesian one, right? Right. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I'm actually kind of the same to... story as uh Satan slaves. I'm super excited to hear your take on this cause I've been wanting to watch it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I went back and watched the original cause I'd never seen it. And then I watched a remake the next night. Um, I recommend both of them. I think the original is better. Elitist. <laughs> uh, well, they're, they're really, it's almost really an in-name only remake. That and the whole connection with black magic and vengeance. Otherwise, the stories are completely Those are different. pretty broad topics. So. Right, exactly. So right. kind of a thematic remake. Precisely. Um, and the original deals with a woman who is scorned by her lover and is compelled to turn to black magic to get revenge. Naturally. Classic. As, Naturally. As, That's why, as you do. listeners, you do not piss off ladies. <laughs> They'll go to black magic. That's that's right. Um, and it's pretty inventive. I mean, it's obviously a low budget, but uh, the effects are pretty good and some actually pretty surprisingly good special effects. Some good gore scenes. Uh, some interesting characters. And also a really interesting, at least to Western audiences, use of uh, Islamic beliefs in the movie, oh, which cool. is pretty different. Yeah, you don't really mm. see that much. No. So that was cool and refreshing. And that was an element that I thought was lacking from the remake, which was well made, well acted. Um, it just felt a little too modern, a little bit like almost every Asian film of the past 15 or 20 years. Okay. Um, but it's it's still worth watching. It has some good effects. A little too much CG, of course, like every movie these days. That's unfortunate because the tagline shutters kind of billing that through their marketing is about like all the special effects and the gore is so good and like the goriest movie you'll see this year. Oh, well, that's just preposterous, kind of a thing, right? But I mean, there there are some good gore shots, uh, the good actors, especially some of the children actors involved, which are uh, the children are heavily threatened in this movie which you don't see often, and that's uh, interesting. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would recommend both of them, the first one more so than the remake. Cool. And speaking of Satan's Slaves, isn't uh, isn't this remake of Queen of Black Magic, it's uh, written by Joko Anwar, isn't it? Yes, it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Cool. Dustin, what'd you watch? Okay, I've been trying to delve in and expand my endless knowledge of Japanese cinema recently. <laughs> 
as I tend to do. Uh, Careful, guys. You might need to get your shots ready. <laughs> <laughs> so um, kind of one of my gray areas there is pink films. I've seen some. I know about some. I've just been trying to brush up that area a little bit. Dustin, what are pink films? That is a very good question. Let's go over that. So, uh, yeah, this is going to take me a minute to get this right. Let me just cheat real Off quick. the cuff, no. Off what cuff, are pink cuff. films? <laughs> so there were uh, exploitation films that kind of gave rise in the 60s and the 70s in Japan and on. Um, over here, you'd almost lump them in with like, well, we had some 70s exploitation stuff here as well that really like pushed the pushed the envelope as far as like what you could show, the violence, uh, being sexually explicit, stuff like that. Um, a lot of pink films really pushed it into this sort of formula that they had, known for being like, you know, a sex scene every so many minutes, uh, dealing with a lot of transgressive themes or ideas, uh, high violence. Um, they were very formulaic because they sold well. It was an easy way to turn some money around. But I think within that format, there's a lot of directors and casts that have done interesting things artistically through them. Hmm. Sure. So I decided to check out from 1974, uh, Zero Woman Red Handcuffs, directed by Yukio Noda. Interesting title. Very interesting title. This is um, from Toei, who also made Female Prisoner Scorpion, which is a very popular pink oh, yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't realize that would be considered a pink film, but that's a good reference to make because somebody who might have seen that. I think it's kind of borderline in a way. I can argue it could be made. <clears throat> Jason is sneering right now in his dismissive ways. <laughs> but you've probably heard of that if you know Quentin Tarantino at all. It's a film that he loves. He's referenced a bunch. Yeah, that's pretty much where it pops up. And so after the first Scorpion film, they kind of tried to keep cashing in on that style. And with Zero Woman, it, they went back to the source, the same mangaka who created the Scorpion manga, which they based the film off of. He'd also made this Zero Woman property, and it's about a female cop named Ray, who kind of pushes things to the limits to get the job done, bring criminals down in any manner possible. The red handcuffs of the title is her titular weapon. It's a very extra long, almost rope-like length of red chain on a set of handcuffs that she will throw and tie people up with, choke them out. The Whoa. edges are razor sharp. She'll slash people. Whoa. So people in this movie intentionally break the law in order to be apprehended by her, right? Perhaps they would. Uh, she's played by Miki Sugimoto, who's super popular in the realm of pink films. She's known for starring in all the girl boss movies. There's a ton of those. I've not gotten through them all myself. Uh, she is just you know gorgeous, very strong. Hmm. Um, definitely sells the film, if nothing else. But at the start of the film, she kind of goes too far. She kills a uh, American diplomat oh, no. in the course of bringing him down for some crimes. She gets thrown in jail. It's very Scorpion-esque at that point where she's kind of like preyed upon by the other inmates who she's had a hand in arresting. Eventually, there's a rising politician. His daughter gets kind of kidnapped by this gang. And so they release Ray to go in undercover and kind of infiltrate them and get the woman out at any cost. As long as she kills all of the gang members and silences everything. That sounds entertaining total, as hell. Go on a total snake plisken route on her. Right, right. <laughs> it, it's super fun. It's very stylish. There's some amazing gore effects. Right from the start, you know that uh, Ray is just a complete badass willing to do anything. She, uh, the, the diplomat that she murders, she actually shoots him in the crotch until he drops. Not cool, wow. man. 
cool. Well, you know. She's sinister, man. She goes for it. Um, it is a hard watch, I think, if you're going to just be getting into this genre. There is a lot of rape that's going on on behalf of the villains. Oh, yeah. Trigger warning on that um, one. For we sure. Should, we should say. Um, and that's just that's sort of the territory when you get into exploitation films. And also, like most Japanese films, uh, especially back then, um, this is one's fogged, right? Is that correct? Well, the way they shoot it, you don't really see anything explicit enough that they had to fog it out. Oh, okay. So they're obscuring things with objects, foreground, mm-hmm. stuff like that. The way like they that. shot it. Okay. And it's for that reason, a lot of the cinematography was very interesting, the way they kind of shot around scenes or framed stuff. Interesting. But uh, typical, you know, bloodbath, people get cut, there's huge blood sprays. Again, violence is fine, folks, but nudity, <laughs> no. Yeah, don't you show a booby. Where does that come from? I don't know. <laughs> um, but in the end, she kind of gets in too deep, um, starts picking them off. Predictably, her handler tries to betray her, let her die, cover it all up. They always do that. But uh, she's able to sort of turn the tables in the end. It's nice. So you would recommend this? Definitely, especially if you're kind of wanting to get into this genre of cinema. And check out more. There's a bunch of sequels. I guess in the 90s they revived it for their uh, V-Cinema series, which is kind of the Japanese equivalent of direct-to-video. Okay. So there's maybe seven, eight more of these things. Oh, wow. I'm going to try to seek them out and check them all. Very cool. Report back later. Yeah, so that's uh, Zero Woman, Red Handcuffs. Nice. How about you, Michael? Watch anything interesting? I watched a stinker. Oh, no. That happens. I'm kind of bummed about it. It happens. This is, again, in my uh, movie purge of the things that I owned that i oh you bought a stinker a long time ago unknowingly um (laughs) this was a a tokyo shock release oh i love them uh yeah really good company really good releases um this one not so much though so this was 1995 the red wolf um directed by yuan wu ping so yuan wu ping awesome fantastic uh action choreographer choreographer, Mm -hmm. uh, director Mm -hmm. as well You'd probably know him if you're not into the realm of like Chinese martial arts films or action films. You probably know him most from The Matrix. Uh, he was action choreographer on The Matrix. Did a lot uh, of uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, Crouching Tiger as well. You know, what oh, wow. if we're going for like I don't know action films ish? I'd say so. Yeah, but Yuan Wuping known pretty well in China for um, action choreography. Um, as well as directing. This one kind of stars... It stars Kenny Ho, which Kenny Ho was not really like a huge draw so much um, for Chinese action cinema, but he was in... Oh, Lord. He was in this long-running Chinese TV show called... Bear with me. It's a strange name. Bear with me. Was it about a bear? Was he like Manimal? Did he yes. change into a bear yes, and it attack was about people? A bear. That sounds awesome. Thrilling radio. I I can't pronounce this because um don't speak the language very well. But forgive me. It's um Bao Ling, which is kind of like a long running TV show, I believe. Um, something I've never seen. Okay. Um, kind of more regional. Um, he did make some appearances, though, in some Jackie Chan films, so like uh, Project A2, Eastern Condors, Police Story 2. Um, so he's been around, and people have kind of seen him in some action films. But overall, this one was just stale, man. Like, story takes place on a cruise ship, and there is uh, your female lead is a thief, and she's kind of going around the cruise ship and pickpocketing people and like mm-hmm. stealing some things. Well, all of the sudden there's a terrorist group. 
that comes aboard the ship starts to take over, and lo and behold, that ship has uranium in the belly of it. Oh, no. Yeah, why a cruise ship is carrying around uranium, I do not know. They don't? Um, I don't think that's typical um, operating procedure. Huh, okay. I don't, I've not been on a cruise ship. Yeah, I've never been on a cruise ship. Maybe so they do. Maybe they do. Um, but your uh, lead star, Kenny Ho, ends up, he's a cop that tried to stop a local crime and accidentally caused the robber that he's trying to subdue to shoot his girlfriend in the chest. Oh, no. Yes, I know. Things go horribly wrong. Um, but overall, the action choreography is really just kind of bland. Um, there's not a whole lot of uh, stunts that are being pushed to really wow you mm-hmm. um, in a movie that you would expect from Yuen Wu-Ping. Mm-hmm. Um, Kenny Ho just doesn't have the charisma mm. that somebody like Jackie Chan does. Um, or Sammo Hung. You know, there's just kind of a, a lacking there. Uh, there's a, also a lot of American actors in it. Uh, uh, and typically when that happens in Asian films, you get a very weird performance. Do you think this was more of an import, like trying to sell to Western audiences more? I think more? it probably was mm-hmm. some of the uh, the themes kind of, you know, centered around like an American action film theme. Right. Um, so it just really didn't play well. That's too bad. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, so I'm not going to recommend this to you if you're a fan of Hong Kong cinema. Um, you'll know that I am based on last week's episode. But yeah, unfortunately, I can't really recommend this one unless you're just a completist. And well, if just... this is your uh, favorite film in the world, please write in genreexposure at gmail.com and tell us why Michael is wrong. Tell me every reason why I'm wrong. About this movie, <laughs> so it's no, uh, it's no under siege, huh? Man, there's some similar things going on with uh, that plot line. As you but... described the plot, that was where my mind. Yeah, oh, I know. Here. The whole time yeah. I was watching it, I was like, <laughs> I've seen this movie before, and there's no Steven Seagal in this movie, or Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> so yeah, sadly, um, a stinker that I watched. No, they, they, can, they can all be winners. No. Right, so let's let's get into it now. What are we talking about today, Michael? Oh, I'm going to let Jason introduce his own movie. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I decided to show a film from 1977 called The Sorcerer. Fantasy film, right? Um, sure, you would think so by the name. Magic, wizards, sorcerers. That's the be. first imagery that's conjured in my mind. But uh, alas, no. It's a William Friedkin movie, and it is about... Four men with uh, various and nefarious backgrounds who have to leave their countries for different reasons. They wind up in a South American village that has deplorable living conditions. Uh, They're desperate to get out, but they don't have the money. So when the local oil company, a uh, huge oil fire is started on one of their wells. So in order to put out the fire, they require a large amount of explosives to take away the oxygen and snuff out that larger fire. So these four protagonists uh, are hired to drive trucks full of nitroglycerin across 200 miles of jungle terrain to put out the oil fire. I'm not going to lie. When you first told us about this movie and you told me the synopsis, I was like, meh. (laughs) Really? I have the same reaction. It's just kind of a weird like a weird premise for a film. Sure. And 
you're like, okay, well, it's a truck full of nitroglycerin. They're going to drive across the country. Cool. Okay. You want to say, like, how interesting can it be to watch people drive 200 miles? Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, like, what kind of drama are you going to be able to pull out of that? Like, I don't know. I was initially pretty underwhelmed when I wa- like when you talked about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when I watched it, I was not at all underwhelmed. Oh, awesome. Uh, so let's get this right off the top. Uh, it's based on a novel by Georges Arnaud, The Wages of Fear, that came out in 1950. There was a prior film adaptation by Clouseau in 53, and I believe that was just called The Wages of Fear. Correct. Also a fantastic movie in its own right. Which I have not seen. So that might have, um, depending on if you've seen this movie or not. Well, I saw Sorcerer first before I saw Wages oh, of Fear. Oh, interesting. Okay. So. Okay, cool. I read the book in college, but I've actually never seen the Clouseau film. I want to go back now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well worth watching. And so I guess since we are genre exposure off of the top, what genre is this movie, Jason? Well, on the surface, you would call it perhaps a thriller suspense, mm-hmm. but it's actually part of a subgenre. Also, it's it's a prime example of New Hollywood, or or the American New Wave. It's a bunch of films uh, came out in the late sixties, the early eighties, that were about young directors. These directors were given pretty much complete control of the movies as opposed to the studios calling the shots. Uh, so you're talking about directors like Friedkin, um, like Francis Ford Coppola, like Martin Scorsese, Dennis De Palma. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Easy Rider is one of the prime examples right. of yeah, the early the New Hollywood. I think of for that. Yeah, The Wild Bunch, Bonnie and Clyde, movies like that. Uh, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg came out of this group. Mm-hmm. So, and Friedkin also has the uh, reputation of being a highly demanding and specific director which was kind of an understatement (laughs) i think that's an understatement yeah yeah uh but that was kind of a trade trademark of these the american new wave and it certainly shows in this movie i think yeah i mean i guess let's just jump right into it okay and i'm trying to think of like ways that i can build this up for you but there's really no way to build this up um the way this film is shot it's not like I mean, looking at the time frame when this was released, this felt like kind of a guerrilla style shooting. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a lot of handhelds going on. There's a lot of mm-hmm. footage that Friedkin even said in one of his own writings that he wanted it to be kind of a documentary feel. Right. That it definitely he, hits that mark. That he wants it to feel like you're watching a documentary. And there are times where you do um and it feels very real, it's very in your face. Um you know, real time things happening. Um, but then he'll take those scenes. And then when we start getting our characters into the jungle, you'll get these absolutely gorgeous, like overhead crane shots and these, you know, sweeping epic action sequences going on. So there's like a blend of all sorts of kind of guerrilla style filmmaking with Hollywood cinema style filmmaking. Sure. That's kind of built into that. And it's a beautifully shot movie. Oh yeah, it's, and to me, almost when I when I talk about like a film like this, it's not there, so you can't call it that. But I almost want to call it a war movie. That's sort of the tone. It has, has that tone. It yeah. definitely has that tone. Well, interestingly, so um, Friedkin. Some people considered. Um, 
Fuck, it's Coppola, right, that did Apocalypse Now? Correct. Okay. Some people consider Coppola to be like Friedkin's competitor. Mm -hmm. I don't think Friedkin ever really came out and said that he was the competitor, but Coppola went to make Apocalypse Now, Mm -hmm. and around the same time, Friedkin went to South America to make Sorcerer. Um, So you've got kind of competing similar uh, geography going on. So, yeah, I think you're totally right to say this kind of feels like a war movie. And definitely with Apocalypse Now, there's almost a tonal echo, I would say, between these two films. Yeah, yeah, you definitely. Could, you could pair them up, and I think you'd get something out of it. Definitely. Together. As far as uh, kind of cast goes, Jason, do you want to break down kind of some of the names people might know from this film? Um, sure. Um, it was largely a cast of unknowns, at least certainly to American audiences. Um, the biggest A-list would be Roy Scheider. Yeah who had uh, worked previously with Freakin' Before on The French Connection, mm-hmm. also a great movie. Um, of course, he was riding high off of Jaws after this, so he was no stranger to hard shoots in adverse environments. Um, but he plays a character called uh, Scanlon, who is a driver for a uh, mafia. Um and his group hits a church at the beginning of the movie. There's just big, there's a lottery in the church, and they, they rob the priests of this lottery. Things go south. He gets hurt. Uh, there's a hit put on him. He has to get out of there. Now, let's break it down. There's a little bit more to that church robbery, though. <laughs> You're right, yes. Then, We've got some debate between us, I think, about that church robbery and kind of the tone of the film a little bit. So we've purposefully not discussed this film very much. Um but the – okay, so I'm going to try to set the scene for you a little bit. During this lottery, there is a wedding happening <laughs> um, where the priest is marrying um, a couple, and uh, the, the, the bride clearly has been abused. Sure. Yeah, there's a close-up. She has a big shiner on her eye. She's got a big shiner. Uh, She has some scratches on her face and stuff, and you totally get the impression that it's from this – jackass that she's marrying that's the impression that's doing this well as you kind of come to realize that this is a church that's pretty much heavily run by the mob yeah Mm -hmm. and um so they're not technically stealing the church's money they're stealing (laughs) the mafia's money so this was it kind of looks like an embezzlement operation more than anything like maybe they're embezzling money through this church um, I don't know. I'm there's, read- there's probably some shady goings on here. I'm I think, reading yes. a lot into that, but I didn't fully buy that Scanlon is the baddest dude around for no. robbing this church. You he know? even I mean, tells his friend later on he never carries a gun. And yeah. He's the driver. But I mean, two wrongs don't really make a right. No. This is true. This is true. And, and I think that's kind of the hook you're supposed to get for the film is these are four people that each in their own way have done something reprehensible and they've now fled from that. Right, right. And they've become stuck in this other life. And I think that's the point of the film, too, is that we're supposed to try to side with with these guys. Mm -hmm. Like, we're supposed to see them as human beings and not completely attached to the crimes or the wrongdoings that they've committed. And I think that's what's interesting, because in the book, when it begins, it just starts with them already in South America, there, everything's set up, and you kind of piece together their backstory. But where he starts this film with these little vignettes, and we kind of see each of them, what they did, them at their worst, basically, and why they had to flee. Right. It sets up a thing where as the film goes, you really start to empathize with them more and more. 
as you see them going through their struggles now that you know where they've been from. And briefly, the other characters introduced are uh, a character by the name of Milo, played by, by Francisco Rabal. Uh, he plays, he has a very quick part. This is the first segment, and he's a hitman. That's all you know about him. That's all you need to know. Yeah. He shows up and kills a guy in cold blood and calmly walks away. Um, Bruno Cremer plays Victor Manson. He is a Frenchman who is indicted for embezzlement. Right. He swindled millions of uh, francs from his company. Um, his brother-in-law, who was involved in this, kills himself. He's about to go to jail. No way out. He flees the country. And the other character is uh, Kasim, played by Amado. Uh, he is a Palestinian um, and he is involved in a bombing in Jerusalem at the beginning, and his group is found out, and he obviously has to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. And he, and of his group, he's one of the few that made it yeah, out. Yeah, he's the only one that we see make it out. Yeah, the others are either killed in the apprehension or apprehended. Right. So, yeah, he's the only one that, that makes it out of this. So we've got four characters of somewhat dubious backgrounds who wind up in this godforsaken village in latin america um it's squalid the conditions are terrible you can roy scheider wakes up in a room full of dozens of other men sharing the same space and you can almost smell the sweat and oh, yeah. blood you and can various other <laughs> effluvia there's a just, there's mm. a like it just in the background there's a dude hacking up a lung right back there and, and god and especially in today's time like in what we're dealing with currently in the world <laughs> you're just cringing you're like oh my god yeah oh. not, not one of them was wearing a mask oh, it was yeah. just there's <laughs> roy, no social there, distancing whatsoever get, get out of there roy and the amount of sweat they've slathered on these guys oh you feel it just watching I'm it. I'm starting to think that wasn't slathered. <laughs> I'm starting. It was all real. I'm starting to think that just the humid conditions. You can <laughs> see the humidity hanging in the air in this movie. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's just everyone is covered in sweat all the time. And each man obviously wants to get out of there. We we see them trying to. They're trying to sell their possessions, whatever meager uh, things they have left, trying to get enough money to get a ticket out, but none of them can manage it. Yeah, every job there is a dead-end job, mm -hmm. uh, and it could mean your death as well. We see um, – we get exposed to a scene where one of them is trying to help uh, put an oil pipeline in. Right. And there's like 15 guys trying to lift this giant oil pipeline into place, and – it goes horribly wrong and it ends up crushing a dude and they just drag him out and start over again. Right. You know, like every job is going to pay you nothing and you could die doing it. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's no future for anyone there. Right. This, this oil company is obviously intended to be an omnipresent and, um, colonial almost presence that cares nothing for the populace only for their profits and they're just eating them up and chewing them out. And I've seen this film compared to Herzog's Aguar, The Wrath of God oh, as sure. well. And I think you get a very um, good sense of comparison there where you can start to see where man comes into nature mm -hmm. and takes and takes and takes. And everyone who's there in their way, so including the people who are native of this land, basically are just in the way. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what happens to them as long as we get our money from what we're trying to do. 
And I think that was what compelled me to the film because despite going in, I wasn't that enthused with the idea. The The way they tell the story and the characterization of everyone, it really pulls you into this space where they're relating this theme to you. And it has a slower pace, especially at the beginning. I think a lot of viewers who prefer their movies more fast-paced and let's get to the point and truncated might find that a little bit challenging at first. But, I mean, it's it's the quintessential 70s movie where they took their time mm-hmm. to tell the story. And I think I think even those people who maybe you know don't like a slower story are going to get sucked in if they give it a chance. Yeah, if you... I, I this film has two di- very different tones. Mm. Um, I think from the opening that we see, where we're getting to know these characters, you're starting to wonder, okay, where are we going to get to? I read the blurb on the back of the movie. Yeah. Where are we getting to? How are we? When get- do we get to the fireworks factory? Yeah. yeah. When do <laughs> when do trucks start blowing up? When does Michael Bay take over? I want to know. <laughs> and it takes a little bit, but I feel that the payoffs that we get throughout the film and towards as you start to get to the real mm-hmm. suspense, those payoffs wouldn't be there if we didn't take the time exactly to set right. up these characters. Exactly, you really need that time spent. The build up to pay off, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and this village to me, I mean, it's all, it's it's purgatory. I think the name of the village is Porvenir. Yeah, but I mean, it is. Purgatory for these characters. That's a, yeah, that's a perfect description. Of you know, what they're, this is. they're paying for their sins, some greater than others, but they're all here awaiting judgment. And when this oil fire happens, and the company is like, "Hey, we didn't mean to drive these trucks. The, the only explosives nearby are sweating nitroglycerin because they've been improperly stored for decades, probably." Uh, they can't chopper them to the site because the chopper would just too much vibrations; it would blow it up. So each man goes through and uh, does a test where they drive the trucks, and whoever passed gets the job. They're basically drive, having them drive over like rough terrain and mm-hmm. seeing if they know how to handle right a truck. You know, which Roy Scheider, he's a driver. He does it, you know, winningly. He he's the best one, right? Uh, but to me, this is basically it's it's their chance at redemption. You know, this is their test. It's their ticket to get out, out of purgatory. Right. It's their chance out, their chance to get back to a normal life. Another shot to do everything over again. Yes. And even one of the names of the trucks that they paint on, on it is Lazaro or Lazarus. You know, they're going to rise from the dead. Right. Interesting. I, I did not. Right. I didn't put those two together. Yeah. And the other truck's name is Sorcerer, hence the title Sorcerer. And speaking of those trucks, they almost feel like a character in the film themselves. Ab- yeah, you absolutely. You get to see them build them from pretty much scratch. They take scraps from different vehicles and kind of amalgam these awesome-looking trucks to drive. So, and I was thinking this, too, that where I haven't seen Wages of Fear yet, but I've seen some comparisons. Um, I've seen people talk about how in Wages of Fear, they're given two brand-new trucks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this feels like every bit of their redemption is going to have to be built by them. Right. And when they're doing such a dangerous job, it's all on them. There's no, yeah, you can't blame the truck. Like you can't blame anything else, but your handiwork. Mm -hmm. You know, you see them, there's, there's a great little montage of them putting things together on the truck, like welding better pieces on and fine tuning the engine and the transmission, you know, and like showing these, it's mostly Scanlon. 
that seems to really know what he's doing. Sure. But some of the others, you know, yeah. they're not. They've learned some things working for the oil company. Yeah, you know, yeah. They're mechanics not, and stuff. They, they kind of know what they're doing. But you really get that sense of ownership of mm-hmm. what they're doing. And then you also feel like, how the hell are you going to take these two pieces of shit across <laughs> 200 miles of jungle terrain and carry sweating nitroglycerin right. without blowing up? Yeah. And the trucks, especially Sorcerer, I mean, it looks like they look like animals or demons. Mm-hmm. Like the grill looks like broken teeth. The headlamps look like eyes. There's these kind of strange ridges on the hood, like scoops that look like a spine. So they look like living, breathing creatures. They're totally boss, man. I want a scale model of one of these yeah. so bad. That would be awesome. And that. did you notice how the truck sorcerer looks a lot like that uh, carved demon face that we see at the beginning? Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Yeah. I do and now. I, I picked up on that at first because it felt very much like The Exorcist, which is another freaking film. Right, right. He opens it on that edifice. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they take off on their journey, they pass by that stone carving. Mm-hmm. Well, now I want to go back and rewatch it because <laughs> I don't think I caught that. Yeah. So to chain us back to the start, Michael, you and I both had this feeling of, you know, how can it be interesting to watch them drive trucks? So when we get to that part in the movie, holy crap. Like the tension it's white knuckled is insane, so we get to this absolutely fantastic scene that when you also read about the behind the scenes part of it um, is probably the quintessential moment that you might see if you check out a trailer for this film mm-hmm. um, they come to this bridge that is a rope bridge that is suspended over um, a river. <laughs> And it looks wide enough that the truck could go on it, but there's, like, missing planks everywhere. It looks like if you step on it wrong, it's going to just completely crash down. Yeah, think of the rope bridge from uh, Temple of Doom, yeah, but a little bit wider. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just, oh, my God. And more rickety. <laughs> like, the whole time, how did they shoot this, even? So, that's actually pretty fun. Um, I did a little research on this. So, they had a river. Mm-hmm. Um, that they were going to construct this bridge over top of. And they put hydraulic system into the bridge so they could control it, move the bridge up and down, and really give you the simulation of like the bridge being rickety. Mm-hmm. Um, and the local officials in the town told them that the waterway would be perfect. You know, it's going to look great. It's always running well. <laughs> um, well, it didn't. There was a drought. Um, and it actually completely dried up. The river did. Wow. So they'd already spent, I, I want to say it cost like over a million dollars to build this special effect bridge. Right. All these hydraulics and stuff, right? And so we're sitting here like in today thinking like a million dollars isn't really that big a deal. For a big picture, no. Yeah. But, but for this, like this is your <laughs> this is your big moment right here. You've got to nail this. Mm-hmm. So they end up like doing location scouts and everything and end up moving this to a place in Mexico now that supposedly has similar um, – you know, look to the river. So they end up just breaking down this huge thing they've already built, moving it to Mexico, putting it in. So the river works. Okay. But now this scene is pouring rain. Um, and you're going to be, you're not on a sound stage, so you cannot pump this through like sprinkler system or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they actually did was they took the river and put a um, sewage pump, in the river and mm. blew all the river water wow. everywhere to simulate. And this storm feels so real. Though. It looks so dangerous. 
It looks... The truck is teetering from one side to the... You, you think any moment it's just going to go right into the water. Right, Like, and they're trying to drive it and not drop the clutch, you know, <laughs> and like trying to maneuver their way over these broken broken planks where all of a sudden the the tire will just drop in and you're like, okay, this is it. Yeah, that's it. This is where they blow up. I think I said it on Hard Boiled too, but when you make a film and it's actually a dangerous production, some of that translates into the final picture, and I think that's very much at play here. Oh, for sure. And most of the actors um, did their own work for this. So uh, they didn't really use stunt drivers for this because Friedkin was so insistent on close-up shots, mm-hmm. he was—he refused to use any mo- motion backgrounds. He wanted it to feel real. He wanted you to feel like you were in these trucks with these guys. He nailed it. Yeah, he completely totally nailed it. He got it. Yeah. Um, so, like, Scheider talks about being on set that he got good at driving because he didn't want to die. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that's a good motivator. He became yeah. this character because these stunts were so dangerous, mm-hmm. and really, they didn't have any business doing these. Like they Again, were, part of the whole, you know, new Hollywood movement, directors were given so much power. Right. There wasn't a lot of oversight. But because of that though, that kind of bleeds into the behind the scenes drama of this film, which god, there is a shitload. <laughs> it's a freaking production, of course there is. It is. Like if you're familiar with any other things Friedkin's known for, like in The Exorcist firing a gun on set, mm-hmm. not telling anybody so everybody looks scared shitless because somebody just fired a gun on set. Yeah, slapping actors to get the uh, appropriate reaction that he wants. Yeah. So things that we can all agree on are like, "Uh, ah, dude, not cool. Yeah. You probably shouldn't do that." Um but the same thing happened here, mm-hmm. you know, in situations where it's not just a blank going off on a set. It's legitimately, if you mess this up, you did kind of a thing. <laughs> nice. uh, thankfully, they weren't actually hauling real nitroglycerin, so they didn't have that to deal with. But at least they weren't that dedicated to real. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't put it past Friedkin at all to be like, hey, I need a guy that can get me. <laughs> yeah. Six cases of sweating nitroglycerin. Drive like you mean it. Exactly. Um, so you had a lot of discord between the actors and Friedkin and a lot of the people on set and Friedkin just being so demanding of wanting to make sure that this is authentic and feels real. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how that scene came about where you're watching crazy this intense edge of your seat thing. Like I watched this at nine o'clock in the morning, so I was sitting there with my coffee and that's a great way to wake up, man. <laughs> you know, I'm expecting just kind of a slow burn 70s film, and that's not at all what I got. No. And you notice how, because before they get to that bridge scene, they come to a fork in the road. Right. And they don't know which way to go. Yeah. They, they each take a different path. They each take a different yeah. path, but that path takes them both to that bridge. Yeah. There was no way around it. Which mm-hmm. sort of ties into the theme of fate that freaking had for this movie, because that's one of the reasons he called it Sorcerer. Well, he said he also called it Sorcerer to cash in on The Exorcist. But um, he said that the Sorcerer is an evil wizard, and in this case, the evil wizard is fate. The fact that somebody can walk out their front door and a hurricane can take them away, an earthquake or something falling through the roof, and the idea that we don't really have control over our own fates, neither our births nor our deaths, it's something that has haunted me since I was intelligent enough to contemplate something like it. So damn freaking right, fascinating. yeah, that's pretty deep. So is it fate? I mean, they're, they're fated to both go to this bridge. Mm-hmm. You know, they've all been fated to be in this village and being this position where they have to pay penance and try to get out of purgatory. Do they have any chance of getting out? And there's no easy way out of this, right? There's no, no 
one didn't choose an easier path. So I think that what we kind of get to as well, so Friedkin apparently uh, became good friends with the writer of this film, which is Waylon Green. Uh, Waylon Green also did The Wild Bunch. Ah, classic. Mm -hmm. So he's, you know, no stranger to awesome action. And demanding totalitarian dictator-like directors. <laughs> oh, you're not saying that about Peck and Paul, are you? Oh, I wouldn't sure. say that. Um, but they kind of grew to have, I want to say, like a love affair with each other, not romantically at all, but just infatuated with the way, yeah, with the way each other viewed the world, um, admired each other. Um, Green gave Friedkin a um, hundred years of solitude um, to read, and Friedkin said that completely changed his life. Hmm. Um, kind of changed the way he viewed life and everything. Hmm. So I'm not really sure how that plays into uh, what we were just talking about. It's but interesting context for everything. Sure. Yeah, it, to, to give you a sense of kind of to tie in there with what Jason's saying about that you don't have control over your own fate. But then again, they chose the path they took. They exactly. chose to be criminals. They chose to kill people or swindle people you're not trying to say jason that there are consequences to our actions um i think freaking is okay well you're not you're not <laughs> going not. as far as I'm to not say saying there's consequences no. to i can read actions. that in the film <laughs> and i think something that idea of fate too kind of gets into the tension because it really feels like at any moment one of them could die you never, oh, yeah. you never feel like it's a safe thing where they're all going to make it to the end that's also where the casting comes into play. Mm -hmm. You don't have a lot of American actors who have it in their contract that they don't die. Right. <laughs> so there's mystery. Yeah, exactly. You're on the edge of your seat. You don't know who's going to make it. Um, and so, like, I'm a big devotee of Hitchcock. I think we all love his films. Mm -hmm. And he had that whole idea of, like, when you talk about tension, it's the time bomb under the table, right? Mm -hmm. It's down there. The audience knows it's there. But the cast don't know when it's going to blow up. Mm -hmm. And I think this film nails that perfectly. To a T. I think that leads into something that I've been dying to talk about about this movie. Yeah, is you? We all think someone's dying on that bridge, right? Yes. And when there comes a point where one of their drivers can't see out of the window due to the torrential downpour, so his co-pilot gets out to guide him, mm -hmm. and friggin' falls through one of the horrible planks on the bridge yes oh my god this part and <laughs> the driver is now leaning out saying i can't see you where are you and the dude's laying under the truck right like, the you think he's is, getting crushed the truck mm. is inching closer and closer There's this animal closer. of a truck's about to devour him and the driver can't see he can't hear he can't he's lost visual on his guide and you're waiting that okay this dude isn't gonna get blown up by nitroglycerin, he's going to get run over by the damn truck. Right. Like, yeah. what a horrible way to go. And that builds you up to this. And I'm sitting there going, he's going to die right mm -hmm. here. But he doesn't. Nope. He does not. He makes it out, and they make it across this bridge. Both parties do. So this is where I hope that everybody's watched this film before you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> because Spoilers. I just spoiled it. But, I think it will become clear, but it should just be a blanket thing. If it's our film for discussion, we are going to get into spoiler territory. Yeah, yeah we're going to have to. So please watch it beforehand if you're curious. So that leads me into what I really, really want to talk about is they make it through this. Mm -hmm. We get to this other scene where they have to blow up a tree using some of the nitroglycerin mm -hmm. because the tree is too big. They can't cross it. There's no way across. Okay, we can breathe a sigh of relief now. Yep, They've easy. made it. 
Kasim's an explosive expert, so he can he can coordinate the tree explosion. Yeah. And one one quick point to that. Yeah, Kasim knows what to do. Each each at some point each character uses their skill set mm-hmm. from the profession that got them in trouble, that got them to this purgatory in the first place. Kasim knows about improvised explosives. So he rigs up this uh device, you know, the the, the sticks and twine and everything to smash the rock onto nitroglycerin to, to blow up the tree. Um of course, uh, Roy Scheider's character, Scanlon, he knows how to drive. He knows about Expert vehicles. Driver. Right. Um, uh, the Frenchman, whose name escapes me for the moment. Uh, Victor Menzon. They Thank also you, call Menzon. him Serrano. Once they get to Porvenir, some of them pick up nicknames. I right. Exactly. The, the, the better hide from the people who are after them. Uh, right. Menzon, he uh, uses his negotiating skills to get higher wages for this Right. Endeavor. He's kind of the heart of the group in a way. Right. And uh, Nilo, the assassin we see at the beginning, well, he failed the driving test. He wasn't one of the original drivers. Um, The driver who uh, got chosen was an old German called Marquez. But Marquez doesn't show up when they're all getting together to take off in the trucks. And they're like, "Where's, where's Marquez? Where's he at? They go to check on him. He's dead. And Nilo's just standing there waiting like, yeah, I killed him. (laughs) <laughs> who else are you gonna pick man right yeah i gotta go and, now and shider is like we need another driver no we have to go kasim's uh, upset because he was friendly with the old german but right you now shider talks him down we need a driver let's go and that's a fascinating subplot too because you feel like the whole time he's there for one of them but you don't really know right what's going on like you think that. is he hunting down roy shider what's mm-hmm. going on yeah and they're, so, they're they're all looking over their shoulder oh sure. yeah like, so yeah and even nilo uses his skills like he pulls a gun out later on you know, to, to help out. But so they, they get through the tree. Right. They get through the tree. Tons more suspense. We're driving along, and Serrano is just telling a story about his wife to his passenger. Which one was it? Kasim. To Kasim. Telling a story about his wife. Tire blows out. Boom. Truck explodes. Holy crap. No warning whatsoever. None. And it's something so mundane yeah. that takes them out. They've made it through this whole jungle, man, of horrible obstacles that you're that they expect to die at any second. The tire blows out. Yeah, they're in the home stretch. And yeah, and the they tire had, they blows had no out. control. A, a fate again. You know, is it fate? There, is there no way out of this purgatory? Is there nothing they can do to redeem their sins? And that's such that scene was such a gut punch, man. Oh yeah, and it's just there were no punches pulled on that either. Mm. It's just. And it didn't build up. You're you're thinking like, oh, they got it. They made it. They're going to make it out of here. And because also you expect your heroes to usually live mm-hmm. in a film. Heroes in parentheses. Yeah. Big parentheses. Are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're expecting them, somebody to make it out. And it's just so quick. Yeah. And done. It's over. I think you were telling me that in Wages of Fear, though, it's shot a little different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's this wide shot. You're seeing uh, two characters in the foreground. They're like taking a break from the truck. They're looking off in the distance where the other truck's driving, and you just see it in the distance. Poof, big explosion goes off, and then you hear it, and you, you, you don't know how it happened. Yeah, you know, still effective. Yeah. Oh yeah. But there's something about this and the way they're lulling you into this story about this guy's going to get back to his wife. Sure. As soon as they start to relax and celebrate a little bit, bam. Yep. Fate takes happens. over. So. There it is. So eventually we're going to see 
some more things ensue, but we really only have one person who quote unquote makes it out. Mm -hmm. And Dustin, you had mentioned this about this fever dream that kind of takes over Scanlan. So kind of toward the very end of their journey, Scanlan's sort of the only one left. He and Nilo kind of run afoul of some guerrilla fighters. There's a big shootout. The truck gets messed up. Nilo is fatally wounded. And they get into this area that's, would you guys describe it as like a Badland almost? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's like little rock spires and it's barren. And And as he's going through there, he just starts to lose it. And it starts to flash to some of the stuff from the past, some of the things that happened earlier. And it feels very much like it could have come right out of The Exorcist. Like this complete horror moment where he is just losing his mind. He's hung up on this horrendous car crash that Mm -hmm. killed all of his, I mean, he was the driver. Mm -hmm. And this horrendous car crash killed all of his friends. You know, his uh, business acquaintances. His cohorts. Yeah. yeah. If, you know, they may not have been friends, but <laughs> but they die horribly. And for not being like a gory film and not taking the normal sense of gore of what we're used to in horror films, those are disturbing. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They felt real. Those felt like a, like a car crash that you came up on. Right. Again, a documentary influence. Yeah. God. I mean, those were harder to look at than some of the stuff that, you know. Mm-hmm. we're used to sure. in horror films. And if we're talking about fate, it seems like that's part of what it is. Like it's his fate to always kind of survive through. So mm-hmm. it seems to this point, he survived the initial car crash. He survived this trip through the jungle and you can tell it just, it destroys him. It weighs on him. And along the way, I, it's been a long time since I've seen this. So it was great. We watching it, but after Roy Scheider and Nilo pass the bridge and they know that Manzan and Kasim are behind them, Scanlan is celebrating. Yeah. He's saying they're never going to make it. Right. We get double shares. He keeps saying double shares. We get more money because they're not going to make it. He doesn't care about these people. He hasn't learned his lesson. He only cares about the money mm-hmm. to get to where he wants to be. Right. And we kind of see that at the end of the film. Right. So he gets all the shares. He does get all the shares, but now I start to question, did he make it? I don't know. Our final scene of the film, we see Scanlan is now delivered the truck. Mm-hmm. He's got his money. He's all cleaned up. We're in the nice he, well, he walks it the last little ways. Yeah. Because yeah the last said, two miles, he yeah, has to walk yeah. it. He just wants to walk it Crazy. to get it there. Well, the truck dies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he's all cleaned up now. He's sitting in a bar. Much like he was at the beginning of the film, but he's in a much different state now. Mm -hmm. Got a passport, lots of money. There's a plane waiting on him to go, you know, and he asks, you know, do I have time? Will they hold the plane for me? And they tell him, well, yeah, for you. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll wait all day. Just people now in the country. Yeah, you're you're everything now. And he ends up having a dance with um, a native lady at the bar. Who, who was kind of sweet on uh, Manzan's character mm-hmm. right at the start of the film. Right. Manzan was really kind to her and stuff. And you kind of see the misfortune of the native people that are there. And that even though now they're surrounded by someone with so much money, mm-hmm. they still have nothing. Right. But we see the same hitman from the beginning now get out of a taxi, right? It's uh, Scanlon's friend who had sent him down to South America to begin with. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. See, right. I always got those two can. But the mixed up. the hitmen with him have white shoes on, which was something Nilo did in his prologue scene. Oh yeah, yeah. right. I noticed that. 
as if that's sort of like a symbol for hitmen in the film right and so i got the feeling towards the end of this like did well let's let's wrap it up though so these these hitmen show up you're seen from outside in the street yeah they're pulling away you see them go inside the music's still playing and then there's just a single gunshot Mm-hmm. And that's where we kind of leave off. Yeah, mm-hmm. we don't know. We don't know. It's pretty safe to assume he's dead. Yeah. Right? You know. Like, to me, my feeling is sort of they've done these terrible things. They end up in this awful place. And as you go along with them, you really start to root for them and cheer for them. You love them. You want them to succeed. Right. And so at the end, you're celebrating with Scanlan that he's done this. And then suddenly it kind of pans back out and you're back to reality. No, he did this terrible thing. He shot a guy. He killed all these people. He's still a shitbag. There was there was was a hit placed on him uh, by the mafia, and all of that just catches up to him finally. And he had the opportunity to change, to learn his lesson. Even in that last moment, if he had gone on to the plane, he might have missed those people. Right. Yeah. Never take a moment to celebrate. That's that's the lesson to be learned here. (laughs) So there are some great, great behind the scenes, fun little tidbits from this film that absolutely bonkers um kind of at towards the beginning in the vignettes that we're seeing um there was a stuntman injured heavily in the the blast of the uh the palestinian terrorists that blow up a building you know there's yeah that scene was very real the reason that that is so real is because um one the stuntman stood too close he was in charge of controlling oh, the explosion. Oops. Like he was the one who was going to push the trigger and and he so he can control the blast and know mm-hmm. where to be. He stood too close, got horribly injured. So Friedkin Jeez. wanted to reset. So they reset and within an hour, I think it was what I've mm-hmm. read that they reset it so quick and they shot again. Like, didn't matter that the dude just horribly got injured. Like, we're shooting this nope. again. We got a movie to make, damn it. <laughs> well, because of the time um, and the turmoil politically there, there was an actual bombing, like, four streets over or oh, something. Wow. So Friedkin grabbed up his camera crew and started shooting. And so a lot of that footage. All is, that chaos and people running around. Yeah, and, that is real. That wow. is from an actual bombing terrorist attack. So you still get that that documentary feeling. Wow. Yeah. I mean, crazy stuff like that going on. Um, when we get to our scene, our big scene where they have to use the nitroglycerin, mm. that scene is supposed to show you how powerful, um, this nitroglycerin is because before we haven't seen it yet. Right. We haven't really seen, we're told it'll wipe them out if it sets off, but right. We, but we, we see one drop kind of make a, like a firecracker explosion on the ground. But that's really all we see. And sure. We haven't really committed yet yeah. to how dangerous this no, is. No, absolutely. So we get to this giant tree that they can't go anywhere. There's no other paths. They have to go through this tree. They tried hacking it with machetes, but it's just pointless. There's nowhere to drive around, yeah. <laughs> so they finally get the idea they're going to use some of the nitroglycerin and blow up this tree. So they set up this elaborate little mousetrap looking thing to drop a rock and they're going to run. So when this tree explodes, it is massive. Like this is a great explosion for film. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's turning to toothpicks too. Yeah. It's just (laughs) uh, one of the, it's a great explosion. Um, So apparently the special effects coordinator did this shot for them and it just didn't look good. 
it didn't really blow up the way Friedkin felt it should, that it should show more like explosion. We really need to feel mm-hmm. what this is going to feel like. It wasn't dangerous enough. Yeah, it wasn't violent enough. Exactly. <laughs> so what they ended up doing um, is Friedkin ended up calling back home to New York and hiring an arsonist. <laughs> and an actual arsonist that has been known to burn buildings down for people, get involved in these insurance scams and whatnot. Um, so he ends up bringing this arsonist down to Central America. That's insane. And gives the dude all the stuff he needs. And voila, <laughs> you get this great explosion. Oh, wow. That is crazy. That's completely off the rails. So I was trying to find more information about about who this arsonist actually was. <laughs> right, but it's pretty, pretty low down. Yeah, he probably didn't want too much exposure for that. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> makes no, sense. Like, makes sense. So it's like, uh, Bill, can you pay me in cash? And it sounds like that's probably how it went. <laughs> I mean, but this explosion, man, is is glorious. Oh yeah, it's very impressive. So, Jason, obviously your film. I'm pretty sure you liked it. Oh, love it, love, um, it. love it even more this time. But Dustin, what do you think? Well, first, Jason, uh, if you had to give it the the old letterboxed five star rating, where does this sit for you? Oh, wait a minute. We would be remiss if we did not talk about the score to this film. Okay, yeah, okay. By, fair enough. By Tangerine Dream, yeah, excellent score. Uh, it is so predictive of the type of score that would be omnipresent in the eighties. Mm-hmm. That uh, electronic synthesizer new wavy now we call it synth wave synth wave right that's what we call it now but it was so ahead of its time and it was so effective it's almost incongruent with what we're seeing with that documentary style and that you know just the violence and the sweat and the grime because you associate those sounds with sleek you know futuristic type visuals but it works oh yeah it's a great score amazing super cool um but if i had to rate this it's a five. It's a solid five for me. It's hard really? to get from Jason. Hard to get a five. It is, but uh, it's just so good. Okay. How well, about you, Dustin? What do you think? Like I said, I'm easy on my fives if you can wow me. So this absolutely is far and away a five for me. Nice. I loved it. Awesome. It's never a film I would have just walked over and picked up or saw oh, absolutely, saw yeah. on Netflix and said, hey, I'm going to watch this. Even knowing that freaking directed, I love The Exorcist, but... um. Thoroughly impressed, thoroughly surprised. I'm Excellent. with you guys. I'm a solid All five right. on Whoa. this one. Three fives. And I think what I love so much, this is this is what I love about this movie club. This is why I want to do this. Right. It's probably something you never would have watched. Like Dustin right. said. Yeah. It's I like would have sorcerer. never mm-hmm. seen this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and because your taste led you down that road at some point, you watched it. And I love knew, the 70s. And knew it was... You still think you're in the 70s, but <laughs> you knew that this movie was great and that not enough people are really talking about it. Right. Not enough people are watching it. Yeah, you know, this one really, it needs more love. What was, Jason, the story you told me about when this came out as far as a theatrical thing and its performance. Right. What was that? Uh, well, there were a couple of factors that kept this from being the huge hit that it was. There was some little movie that came out at the same time. Yeah, like, like a month before, something called... Uh, Star Wars opened. <laughs> I don't, that seems like it's a cult movie. You know, it was bigger back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably not very many people are into it now. I can't imagine <laughs> having this film, and that's that's what you have to follow up in theaters. Right, because people, the seventies cinema was very reflective of the times. It was there was so much political turmoil. Um, 
you know. And all of that is in Sorcerer. Too, yeah, it's right? all in Sorcerer. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, you know, the recession was terrible. People didn't have jobs. There were gas lines just to fuel your car. You know, it was just a horrible, horrible, stressful time. And that's reflected in movies like Sorcerer. Um, but after Star Wars, everyone wanted, they weren't ready to go back to reality. Right, you wanted those <laughs> spectacles, the, the space, the big space opera. Exactly, they wanted that escapism. Mm-hmm. So audiences were not in the mood for Sorcerer. And they were also confused by the title, because yeah, a lot of people thought it was a sequel to The Exorcist or something. So, yeah, Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, nobody watches that anymore. Well, Jason, amazing pick. Thank Glad you. to have watched it. Please go out and find this film and watch it if you've not seen it. It is on Blu-ray. And is also, I rented it through, um, actually rented it through Fandango. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I I was trying to avoid Amazon for, you know, because Amazon. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Fandango, uh, it was only like three bucks. That's nah, still, yeah, it's, so it's worth it. Totally that was a movie it. rental back in the day, three yeah. bucks, you know. And that's another thing we'd like to try to do for... Um, all listeners is kind of let you know where you can find these films. Mm. Um, so you don't have to search as much as we do. Um, and we're going to try to keep it to where there's not like a big cost investment, you know, of right. being able to watch these because they're great movies. I don't think Dustin's agreed to this yet. Well, <laughs> everyone will learn. I'm the collector. I love to pick up Blu-rays. I have a massive library. I'm building a video store basically, but we'll try to find a way for you to see it. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't want to invest in the Blu-ray like Dustin does with everything but there um, is a blue if you want it i don't have the blue oh that's a half a shot i have the blue oh, thank you jason there, there you go <laughs> well i'm glad you guys enjoyed it i was a little worried there but i don't know why man i knew your impeccable taste it's would come through a, in the end it was such a great film it's not for everybody though you know it's it's a different era but so good oh, if yeah. you have seen it write in tell us what you think genre exposure at gmail.com hopefully once we get rolling with these we can actually have some input from people we can read on air yeah that'd be great we'll get to that at some point tweet us is that how you say it tweet us message us contact us any which way you can on the internets yeah on the interwebs mm-hmm. on the webs so dustin next week is your pick right next week so is my pick. you're switching it up a little bit what are we watching right well we've talked about how we're all kind of rooted in horror and yet our first two films haven't been horror so I think that we need to fix that. And also, this is going to come a little out of order. Uh, it's taken some time to build up and get a podcast going. But January is Giallo January. Okay. It's a thing a lot of people have started online. You spend the month celebrating Giallo films, watching what you can. What are Giallo films, Dustin? We will talk about that next time. Oh, okay. I don't want to bury Tune the... in next time to find out what Giallo is. I don't want to bury the... cliffhanger. <laughs> I don't want to bury the lead too much, but... Uh, Next time, we're going to be checking out Luigi Bazzoni's The Fifth Chord from 1971. Very cool. Fun. So look forward to that and the wild, wonderful world of Giallo films. Excellent. Can't wait. Well, thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Guys.